there are more medicinal cannabinoids. Like uh, recreational users, and I hate to generalize, but they're very interested in like THC. They want to enjoy themselves. They want to be up. And medical users are interested in like pain control and anxiety control and sleep. So you might have more CBD. Hi, this is Neil, and it's time for a special bonus edition of Cannabis Daily. On November the 3rd, over 400 industry leaders, investors, and policymakers gathered at the New York Academy of Medicine to discuss the future of the New York cannabis market. Here is one of the panels at that event. By the way, tickets are now on sale for the 2023 conference in October next year. Get them now at CannabisNewYork.live. This panel is called No Patients Left Behind. I'm really excited to bring up senior cannabis reporter for Law 360 for a fireside chat uh, with Dr. Peter Grinspoon and Sam Reisman. Come on up, gentlemen. Peter, it's a dirty job bringing everybody back in after lunch, but somebody's got to do it. (laughs) Can you tell me how you got into medical cannabis? Sure. Well, there are two main ways. Um, I'm a primary care doctor and... um, a medical cannabis specialist in Boston. I was involved in both the legalization campaign in 2014 and in 2016, and I've been practicing cannabis medicine for about 20 years. But the way in which I got into it is twofold. One, my dad was a very famous cannabis specialist. He was a psychiatrist at Harvard called Dr. Lester Grinspoon. So growing up, there were people in favor of cannabis legalization in my living room, like the entire, my entire childhood. And they'd be having these incredible conversations, passing around a joint, then you go to school and you go to the D.A.R.E. program and they tell you how cannabis makes you amotivational. And I'm like, you know, who's amotivational? These really interesting people at my home or, you know, these policemen that keep telling us the same thing over and over again. So that, but also my brother Danny, unfortunately fought an unsuccessful battle with leukemia uh, when I was eight and he was 16. But my parents illegally bought him cannabis in the early 1970s, right at the beginning of Nixon's war on drugs. And There's nothing more impactful than seeing a family member or a sibling in particular benefit from the use of medical cannabis. And when he wasn't using cannabis, he was like lying in his bed, throwing up into a bucket by the bed. And when he was using cannabis, he was able to eat, he was able to interact, he was able to play with his little brothers. So I was exposed at a very early age, both to cannabis activism and to like a firsthand view of how cannabis can really help patients. And that made me really immune to the other nonsense they teach us in medical school. And I've been in favor of it and treating people for the last 20 years. So you've been in medical cannabis for long before recreational adult use legalization was on anybody's lips or before it was even you know an idea that had real currency. What would you say to some comments that I heard earlier this morning, which I've heard in other forms before, that medical legalization is kind of a stalking horse or a ploy <laughs> to push through recreational later down the line? Somebody called it wreck in drag. I guess Dennis Perone very famously in 1996 got into trouble by saying, by saying exactly that. He's saying, aha, we legalize medical as a Trojan horse to uh, legalize recreational. Now, it is and it isn't. Uh, for a lot of people, it's the medical cannabis program. They have really serious medical problems in cannabis. They find it more helpful than opiates for pain, even non-steroidals that destroy your kidneys. They find it um, very helpful for insomnia, for fibromyalgia. So there have always been medical patients, but politically it was more palatable. Right now, 94% of people support uh, legal access to medical cannabis. Now, name anything that 94% of Americans agree on. I mean, who would have thought that 
cannabis would be the great uniter. And the support for recreational is about two thirds, about 67%. So there was always much more of a um, of a political environment for legalizing medical, you know, people would see, you know, sick patients arrested, raided, HIV patients, the judge would let them go and be like, why'd you drag them into my court? I mean, it really, you know, the public relations was brutal on the DEA and on the government. So, um, but in reality, we could argue how much of a difference is there between recreational and medical? Some people say that all use is medical. I don't, I don't think that's true. You know, if I am going to a Who concert like a couple summers ago in Fenway Park and I smoke some Durban poison with my cousins, that's not medical unless you define medical so broadly as to be anything that's fun. I think that's recreational. But then on the other hand, my brother Danny dying of cancer, that's obviously a medical use of cannabis. And I think a lot of it's like in the gray zone in between, you know, construction worker comes home, his or her muscles are sore. Everybody or most people need something after work, you know, instead of a drink, they take a puff or two and then they're like re-energized and they feel better and they could do their activities. Is that medical or is that recreational? Yes, it's sort of in the gray zone between both. So I think it was an artifact of the politics that we got medical than recreational, except as you pointed out earlier in South Dakota, where they did both of them until they yanked um, the recreational out of the via the courts. But I think it is somewhat of an artificial dichotomy. And, you know, that leads into what we were talking about before of like, you know, is it really sensible to have two separate systems, medical and recreational, now that it's uh, cannabis across the board is becoming accepted? So, yeah, that was my next question. When states do transition from medical only to medical and recreational sort of coexisting, what policies do you think need to be in place to ensure that patients continue to have access. Maybe rather than going down all 19 states and giving them a report card, let's take Massachusetts. What happened in Massachusetts and what did you see on the ground? Right. And we're talking about patients, not about equity, which is sort of its patients, own little, yes. own little uh, complicated thing in every state, including Massachusetts. Um, you know, medical patients don't want to be bulldozed. They don't want to wait in line be behind college kids when they're trying to get their medicine. They uh, want to make sure that there's a safe supply. They don't want the recreational to sell out. And a lot of these states, Massachusetts and other states, have a lot of protections for the medical patients. You could get it usually at 18 instead of 21. Uh, the dispensaries sell out first on the recreational. They preserve some of the medicals. So they're much less likely to run out. And, and frankly, having a medical card can protect you if you have drug testing at your job. It doesn't help you if you're in a federal job, but for most of the state jobs. And as we discussed, some of the workers' comp. They're starting to pay for it in a couple states. So there are a lot of uh, benefits and protections for medical patients. And, you know, whether or not we have medical and recreational or just eventually one system, you have to protect the medical patients because, you know, there are very few people that would argue that, like, someone who's using it purely recreationally should come in line before, like, a cancer patient. So uh, it is really critical to have these protections. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about what protections and what benefits there are? Because in your, you mentioned insurance, workers' comp, your home state, Massachusetts Supreme Court said <laughs> workers' comp does not have to pay for medical cannabis because medical cannabis is federally illegal. So what actual sort of practical things uh, do, what practical benefits do incentivize patients to stay within the medical program rather than just becoming another customer? Right. Well, right. Exactly. I mean, as we discussed, a lot of people go to recreational stores and use it medically and a lot of medical patients use it recreationally. So there's a lot of overlap, but the specific benefits to having a medical card, you don't pay 20% tax in Massachusetts. That's a huge difference from a lot of my patients, elderly patients, um, veterans, patients on fixed income, not having to pay 20% tax. 
Number two, for medical but not recreational, the companies are allowed to provide uh, discounts. And again, they're discounts for veterans, discounts for seniors, and it really makes it affordable for people, especially because health insurance isn't paying for it by and large yet. Um, in addition, they have their own lines that move a lot faster. As I mentioned, they don't have to wait behind the college kids. They have a they can't guarantee, but they have a much higher likelihood of having access, priority access to their products because there's a certain amount that each of the stores have to relegate for medical use. And that prioritizes over recreational use. Um, and again, people who are drug tested, it really helps them to have a card. It doesn't help any, everybody, you know, not all states have reciprocity. I remember, um, you know, studying about this uh, poor guy in Alabama that had the medical card from Arizona and he got arrested and he's still in prison for it. So, but generally speaking, if you have a card, there are a lot of situations, both employment and otherwise, where you find protection. So these are all very, very important things. And, and finally, the, the access to children is important. You'd never have access for recreational cannabis uh, officially to people under 18. You know, teenagers sort of do whatever they do, regardless of what you tell them to do. But generally speaking, you know, if we have sick kids in Massachusetts, it's a little stricter you need two doctors, one of whom needs to be a pediatrician. So it's not like anybody can just give a, you know, and it's a 14 year old a card, but there's some really sick kids. And, you know, increasingly people are interested in it for autism and kids who have cancer and cancer pain, and you don't really want to give them those fentanyl lollipops. Uh, so it really does expand who has access and protections for medical cannabis. To that, um, what are the, are there differences in the terms of products that are made for a medical market that you wouldn't necessarily see in a retail market. I imagine there's things like pills, more tinctures. I have read about marijuana suppositories. I don't know if that's real. <laughs> I don't know if that's real, but I mean, are, is it like an entirely different like supply chain that for if you're creating something that is medicine as opposed to just well, a consumer good? I think it's the same supply chain, but there are certain variations. Like there are more medicinal cannabinoids, like uh, recreational users that I hate to generalize, but they're very interested in like THC, they want to enjoy themselves, they want to be up. And medical users are interested in like pain control and anxiety control and sleep. So you might have more CBD, you might have some more of the other medicinal cannabinoids such as CBG, CBN, or CBC, and less of a, you know, worshiping of like pure THC. So there are more medicinal cannab cannabinoids and they you see them more in the medical stores. And also, I would say you should see them more in the medical stores because they're more medicinal. <laughs> so when New Jersey and New York uh, came online or began to generate, began to do their adult use regime, one of the things that regulators in both states said was very important to them was ensuring that there was that patient access and ensuring that before retail sales commenced, this is New Jersey I'm thinking of, ensuring, asking all of the operators already selling to produce their plans and show, demonstrate how they were going to ensure that patients have gotten access. I know it's a few states away, but I mean, have, what, what have you heard about the success of that or, or not success of that? I've heard very few complaints about the access of medical patients in Massachusetts. I think we've done a really good job. And again, I think it is because these protections have really worked out well. I mean, again, if you have a medical card, you go first in line, you get preferential access to products, you the limits are higher for how much you could have, you can grow more, and it gives you legal protection. So I think it's been very, people have been happy with it and have been very, um, you know, very enthusiastic and supportive. Of course, there is a question of like, to get the card, you have to pay a couple hundred bucks. And is that really worth it? Does it balance out? You pay 20% less tax. 
and you also get a lot of good deals. But you know, if you use it once a week, it probably makes no sense to go to the medical market and to see a doctor and to get a card and to pay money for that. If you use cannabis three times a day, financially, it makes a lot of sense. So I think for a lot of people, um, because we haven't really had a lot of access problems for medical or recreational, it's gone pretty smoothly in Massachusetts. I think a lot of it comes down to a financial decision, what makes the most sense in order for you to uh, be able to afford your access until the insurance companies uh, will be paying for it, which is on the horizon, but we hasn't been accomplished yet. So I guess the, the sort of big question underlying all of these questions is, does it make sense in your mind to keep a separate and distinct medical regulatory regime and recreational regime? Right. Well, there are different ways to answer that. Like if we just started from scratch, would we have medical and recreational or would we just have legal cannabis with protections for medical patients? Um, so, you know, there's what happened historically and then there's what might happen as a thought experiment if we just started from scratch. I thought we'd have separate systems. We just, but what the most important thing is not do we have medical and do we have recreational. From my perspective as a physician and as a patient advocate is that we do have these protections. And so having the, the dichotomy between medical and, and recreational has been a very helpful um, mechanism for having these protections for the medical patients to access, to protect them, to access their, their to protect their access. And so to me, taking care of patients, what really matters is that my patients can get access to good information, which they rarely get from their doctors, unfortunately, and good product. And I think that if we had protections for the medical patients, it doesn't really matter to me if we have a separate medical or a separate recreational system. But I do think the protections that we've discussed are really, really critical because again, recreational cannabis is great. I'm all in favor of it. But you know, when I see these medical patients, it's not like a, it's like life or death. It's like they can't eat without it. So we do have to prioritize one way or another, the medical patients, but whether that has to be two separate clunky overlapping systems, you know, again, if I think if we were going to start from scratch and just with a magic wand, legalize cannabis, we wouldn't it doesn't necessarily make sense to have medical and recreational uh, dichotomized split off from each other. President Biden has asked the FDA and uh, the DOJ to review the Schedule One status of cannabis. And I'm kind of curious, what in terms of the medical literature, as FDA goes and checks their notes, has, has there been like something that has truly changed in the last few years in terms of the scientific understanding of cannabis's medical properties? Has that shifted enough that you think we'll see a, a real federal policy change around treating this as medicine? Absolutely. Um, things have changed across the board, but in terms of the science, um, you know, during the war on drugs, we were looking in one direction. We were looking for harms. Any, over the last 50 years, any studies or researchers that were interested in studying the benefits of cannabis weren't funded. And then not only were the, um, only the researchers who were looking for harm funded, but that's what was sort of uh, reported, and that's what was sort of promulgated by NIDA and OC Office of National Drug Control Policy. The government's been waging this 50-year war against cannabis. So more recently, it's getting easier, not just in the U.S., but in other countries to do research on the benefits. So the, the um, evidence base for the benefits has been skyrocketing. Um, you know, we don't have quite enough yet of the randomized controlled trials where you blind one group you, the doctors and the patients, you blind both groups to the treatment to see that's how you weed out the placebo effect. But 
it's very hard to blind cannabis. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but like if I smoked pot, I know it, versus if I've taken a placebo effect, it gets you high. That's why people have been using it for 5,000 years. So it, it's very hard to come up with that type of study. But there's been an explosion of interest in what's called real-world evidence, which is patient registries, surveys, and there are very few people that are going to argue these days that cannabis doesn't work for chronic pain. You'd, you'd be very hard to find even even the most diehard anti-cannabis prohibition people um, have a hard time arguing that it doesn't help with, with the chronic pain. So I think the evidence is there. Um, as we discussed earlier, the FDA, first of all, there's a lot of institutional inertia. NIDA, the DEA, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, NIH, they're all pretty anti-cannabis just because of historical momentum and it's slowly starting to change. They're slowly starting to allow people to work in the government that have used, admit to using cannabis. They didn't used to let people even work in the government. And with the research coming in and with public opinion saying, you know, this helps us and it's safer than so much of this other nonsense that you give us. I mean, just for pain, just think about for a second, like I'm a doctor treating your pain. If it's a really severe pain, you need opiates, you break your arm. But if it's just a little bit less than that, if it's like the kind of pain where like, we're all getting a little more portlier, a little more arthritic as we get older, our knees hurt, our back hurts, you could put someone on opiates, but nobody wants to be in opiates. We lost 110,000 people to opiates over the last 12 months. Gabapentin doesn't do anything. Uh, and the non-steroidals, if they don't give you a heart attack or an ulcer, will destroy your kidney. I see so many patients decade after decade with these kidneys that are just getting destroyed by taking their naproxen, their ibuprofen, their diclofenac. If we start them all on the low dose, you know, CBD, THC mixtures doesn't necessarily get you very high. It can protect a lot of kidneys and, and prevent a lot of, so a lot of harm reduction we can get out of using cannabis. I'm glad you mentioned the, the treatment plan thing, because I'm kind of curious, what's the experience for a medical patient who isn't self-medicating, lack of a better word, but works with a clinician like yourself? Like, how is that process, you know, different and distinct from somebody just going into a medical store and buying what they need? Right. Well, it's interesting. Doctors get upset that bud tenders are giving up medical advice. Yeah, the doctors don't know anything about it. And you can't complain about the bud tenders if you don't know anything about it yourself. So we urgently, urgently have to educate doctors and nurses. And, you know, the endocannabinoid system is, uh, you know, the neurotransmitter system by which cannabis works. And it's only taught in 13% of medical schools. This is a hangover from the war on drugs. And this is crazy regardless of what you think of cannabis. And the endocannabinoid system controls everything. So we desperately need to educate doctors. And the, the clinical visit with a doctor is a real opportunity to talk about harm reduction, use some CBD, use a, vapor, a dry air vaporizer instead of smoking it, start low and go slow. You can educate people about drug interactions. You know, CBD is perfectly safe, but it does act like grapefruit juice. It uh, can raise the level of other drugs in your blood by competitively inhibiting the liver enzymes that metabolize them. So, you know, it, it doesn't matter for some drugs, but if you're on a blood thinner or if you're on an immunosuppressant or an anti-epileptic, some drug that has to be in a narrow therapeutic window, your doctor has to know if you're on CBD. And another example is if you use cannabis every day, your anesthesia requirements are higher. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. They just use a little more anesthesia. What's dangerous is when the doctors don't create a climate where doctors and patients can communicate and you, the anesthesiologist doesn't know about that. So I think these medical cannabis clinical visits educate patients, they integrate the care. 
I love doing it as a primary care doctor. I do it in private practice, but also in my primary care clinic. But in the primary care clinic, it's so integrated. I know the specialists. I've known the patient for 10 years. I know what works, what doesn't work, and I could explain, start really slow, you know, start low, go slow, especially if they're an elderly patient who hasn't ever used cannabis. So there's so much harm reduction and education that we can do in the doctor's office. So that component of medical cannabis, we need to expand. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean we need separate medical and recreational cannabis systems. With 50 seconds on the clock, maybe that's a good place to leave it, unless you have what is you know, a closing thought you have about what you wish people would understand that maybe they, people don't know about medical cannabis and medical patients, well, particularly in this climate with more and more retail. I think that, you know, one of my pet peeves is that doctors have to know more, nurses have to know more, and patients need to expect their doctors and nurses to know more. And you have to tell your physician if you're on cannabis or if you're on CBD, because there are medicine interactions. So I'm just a huge advocate, regardless of what the regulatory uh, structure is, of really deep, honest communication between caregivers and patients. I think we could avoid a lot of bad outcomes. We could uh, increase the quality of care. So I think that's all really, really critical. So there you had Dr. Peter Grinspoon, a physician and cannabis specialist from Grinspoon Wellness Consulting, and Sam Reisman, the senior cannabis reporter at Law360. Now, you can secure your seat at next year's event right this second. It's scheduled for the 4th of October, 2023. Tickets are on sale at CannabisNewYork.live. You'll find the link in the show notes.